0: Hey, welcome to Invention.
1: My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, you know what? I am excited today because I feel like this episode of Invention is going to be something that I I haven't fully dealt with yet, which is an invention that I can't really find a bad angle on. Yeah. But I feel like today we're going to be talking about an invention that I think is just pretty great. Yeah, we're talking about Braille. Braille, the writing system based on tactile sensations for people who are blind or otherwise visually impaired. So it's a writing system.
0: Yeah, it's and it's it is hard to imagine Braille being used for, for evil. Well, I <laughs> mean, except in the sense that all writing systems
1: could be used for evil. So well, I guess yes, true. You could yes. ha,
0: somebody could write something mean or you know outright dangerous in Braille in the same way that one could do that in in any uh, form of written communication.
1: Yes, but I would say as a modification and expansion of an existing writing system, and of course writing comes with all that writing can do. I'd say it's just a good thing to.
0: Yeah, I mean, they didn't start the fire, right? Right. (laughs) It's a continuation of existing uh, written language technology. So whatever was already... Uh, bad or dangerous in the written word uh, was already there. And and this is not necessarily adding anything uh, uh, new to it in that regard.
1: So written language is something that we might not often think about as an invention, but I think it's actually one of the most important inventions to consider.
0: Oh, yeah. We've talked about this a a good bit on Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the past. But but what is language but the power to take words and thoughts and fix them in place, to record them and create complex forms out of their structure? And then one can simply come along, read the words, and hear those words in your mind. Uh, think those thoughts for yourself. So when when it, it's it's crazy to think about this to sort of deconstruct it and realize that when we read the words of a long dead thinker we are read we are loading their thoughts into our mind and yeah. thinking with their thoughts
1: you're going into the matrix you yeah. are uploading their thoughts i mean maybe not exactly cuz you're probably reading across a translation gap and there's something like that but i mean reading the words written by another person i feel like is is about as close as you can get to just mind you know mind reading
0: yeah i was thinking about this too with translation the other day like you know what i wonder what are what are the oldest words that i've read that i can actually you know get the gist out of Mm that's not too archaic in its uh, formation um yeah, I mean, probably. Uh, I mean, c- certainly, probably something in Old English. Yeah, passages in Beowulf. the yeah, ones you the can kind of get the sense of. Yeah, uh, but those are cases where even though there's, uh, you know, maybe a little distortion, uh, you know, a little static from all those centuries of uh, linguistic uh, shift, but but you're you're still feeling those thoughts. You're still thinking those thoughts from another time. Writing's a time machine. Exactly. Now, while spoken language is auditory, obviously, uh, written language is a visual system. And for the blind or visually impaired, uh, written language is going to be rather lacking. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Just strokes on a page uh, are going to be uh, difficult, if not impossible, to read. And I would say because... uh...
1: Education is so often tied up in literacy throughout much of human history and lots of cultures. I think this has led to a kind of unfair and dismissive under consideration of the role of the education of the blind because it's like, well, they can't read the written texts we have. So what, you know, what can we really teach them?
0: Yeah, it wasn't until 1784 that that uh, a school for the blind was uh, established in France and then the concept spread throughout Europe. But but pr- prior to that, I mean, certainly if you go back to the ancient world and, and prehistoric times, you had... <laughs> Is sort of the varying levels of uh, of importance or, att- or attention paid to uh, uh, the blind or visually impaired individuals, especially individuals who uh, who were born uh, visually impaired mm. or without uh, the ability to see. If you go back to prehistoric uh, civil uh, civilizations, and they they might have had a practice of disposing of such individuals. Uh, likewise, throughout you know the ancient world. You see, sort of varying treatment, right? There are times where a blind individual is elevated, uh, that is celebrated. Plenty of other uh, blind or visually impaired individuals who are just simply lost to history. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you think about, say, uh, Homer, uh, the um, you know the the, the famous uh, Greek storyteller. Uh, uh, whether or not this was an actual historic individual, uh, many of the uh, the accounts uh, say that, uh, that that he was blind. And so, on one hand, if this was an actual blind storyteller uh, there you know there's a, there's a lot to be inferred from that but but then, at the same time there there is this tendency in human history to take individuals that um, that are notable in some sort of disfigurement or a difference in ability or even something like twins. Mm-hmm. and what they end up being is not uh, not really a, a treatment of individuals with those conditions, but Symbols for other people to interpret. Right. Uh, it's it's like when you look at movies about twins or stories about twins. It's very often something created by. Uh, singletons, by individuals who do not have a twin, Mm -hmm. who are finding something in it in this situation to speak to their own identity.
1: To be a metaphor. Yeah, and I I think that's exactly correct. I mean, you see characters uh, in—you brought up Homer, but I think about like the legendary character of Tiresias, the blind prophet, Mm -hmm. which I I think is very often deployed by sighted people as sort of like a, a metaphor or a symbol or something like
0: that. Right. So you see this trend. Without going just really deep into sort of the history of blindness in in human societies, but but very often the blind were treated as metaphors, as uh, and uh, and, they, and they certainly lacked any kind of like large scale uh, you know communal uh, experience. Like the blind were not able to come together across cultures and do things like develop their own system of written language and certainly you didn't have any real efforts to make the sighted world more accessible to sightless individuals you know an individual might well be able to depend on a family or a subordinate for aid in reading and as early as greek and roman times some individuals had access to lenses to aid them in reading mm-hmm. And of course, we'll have to come back and do a future episode of invention on that. But while the written word might be tactile in some cases, due to the way that it's carved in stone or the way that it's you know created using a stylus and wax, this was not the primary desired effect of those systems.
1: Yeah, and now I mean, now that we live in a modern world where we are aware of the concept of Braille, you might not understand its history or exactly how it was invented or how it works. Hopefully, you will know something about that at the end mm-hmm. of this episode. But you're aware of the fact that it exists. Before that, it's, it's hard to imagine that there would not be some kind of widespread reading system within languages for people who are blind or visually impaired. But throughout history, that just generally was the case. But we should also say that Braille, as it's known today, was not the first system of
0: tactily encoding written language for the blind. That's right. Uh, for instance, there was an English system uh, uh, created by Dr. William Moon invented in 1845, Moon Type which sounds wonderfully elven, uh, you know, like like some sort of elven script that comes to to life in the moonlight or something. Uh, but no, it's just named because that was his last name. Uh, but it was a, basically a font type that is embossed and can be felt. And this wasn't even the first such type. Uh, there was a... Uh, Valentine Huy uh, presented a version of this in the 1780s. Yeah. And again, the, the simple concept here is... Uh, existing fonts like mm-hmm. A's B's C's D's that you can that you can trace with your fingers that you can touch and identify oh that's an A this is a B this right. is a C etc
1: Yeah Hui's system consisted of these embossed letters and it was in fact somewhat useful Uh, for blind students, like Louis Braille, who we will talk about in this episode Mm -hmm. as the inventor of Braille, learned to read with Hoey's system before he invented Braille uh, based on another system we'll talk about in a bit. But it was the system of embossed letters where like a normal letter, as you're saying, would be pressed through on a damp piece of paper and it would leave a print there that you could feel with your hand. But it had these real limitations. Like to to hold this size of type, the books of print had to be huge and monstrously heavy. Like I've seen estimates of an average of 4.5 kilograms or about 10 pounds per book. Wow. Uh, which is too heavy to hold and carry around in a practical way, especially for a child who's learning to read. But beyond that, there's just a reality that embossed alphabetic letters – are hard to read by touch. And this is something that might not be obvious to sighted readers. You just like look at them and say, well, they look different to me. I can tell the difference. But reading with your fingers is a different type of of sensation activity than reading with your eyes is. And uh, and it just turned out that for many blind students, there was a lot of ambiguity in the shapes of letters. You could be trying to read across a line, and number one, it wasn't very fast because the letters were big and you had to sort of like feel around on each one, you couldn't just run your finger across a line. But then beyond that, there's ambiguity between letters. Like a C might feel a lot like a G and all that, and it would take you a minute to figure out the difference. And this made reading
0: slow and laborious. I feel like there's something probably revealing uh, in this this journey thus far. You know we've we've talked about the roles uh, or the interpretations of uh, of of blind and vision impaired individuals throughout history. and And here with the, these these systems, They do seem like a sighted world-first technology. Absolutely, yeah. It's blind or vision-impaired individuals who will make uh, some of the the, the key uh, breakthroughs here. That's absolutely right. And
1: at the same time, I don't want to downplay uh, like uh, Hui's contribution. Oh, like, no. th- This was a real invention, this idea of the embossed letters. It was better than nothing. And I, I think it's clear that Hui was well-meaning. Um, oh,
0: yeah. Because it is easy to take for granted, and speaking here as a, as a sighted individual, mm-hmm. to take for granted the degree to which we rely on sight and— and 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 use that as our our key means of interpreting the world. Uh uh-huh. But also not to realize how much you're
1: not getting about other people's experiences. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you haven't experienced it yourself.
0: Yeah. This this is certainly an area. Uh, as we continue on in the episode, I, I imagine we have some listeners out there who uh, who are blind or are vision impaired in, in one way, shape, or another we would love to hear your feedback on on braille on uh, the experiences we're discussing in this episode
1: totally and one more thing I just realized about uh, we should mention about the Hui system is uh, I, I hope I'm saying his name right it's I was trying to look up how to pronounce this one it's H-A-U-Y and I could not find it I think it's Hui, but that's my best guess so if you're a French speaker out there and you're grimacing every time we do this this won't be the last time in the episode we <laughs> encounter a difficult French name so all apologies but uh Yeah, so another thing about his system is that it's probably also easier to use this system if you are an adult who is used to reading printed letters and then lost their sight later on in life and you can feel around on those letters. Than if you're a child who has has never learned to read printed letters and you could perhaps be learning a tactile system that's much easier to pick up from the beginning – but we'll come back to this I think we should we should move now to talk about something called night
0: writing. Are you ready for night writing? Yeah, it sounds great. It sounds like a, uh, like a 1980s horror film that I could really get into. Oh you like know, night gallery. Night gallery with a little like night gallery meets automatic writing meets uh, you know a little night cheese in there. <laughs> well I guess it
1: also oh yeah, working on my night cheese. I just know someday we're gonna get sued because we do a version of working on my night moves no. and we're not gonna no, we're, we're not gonna we, remember we to edit it we out. Know better. <laughs> this is night writing. So you might have heard or remember from history classes that uh, the design and tactics of mobile artillery were important to the success of Napoleon's military campaigns in the early 19th century. And Napoleon himself had been an artillery officer when he was coming up through the ranks. And another artillery officer in Napoleon's army would end up playing an important role in the creation of the modern braille writing system. And this man was Nicolas-Marie-Charles Barbier de la Serre, often shortened to just Charles 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 – Charles or Charles Barbier. And one good source I found that included uh, stuff about the life of uh, Charles Barbier was a book called Louis Braille, A Touch of Genius by C. Michael Malore from National Braille Press in 2006. So Barbier was born on May 18th, 1767. And he was born into an aristocratic family, not like galactic scale bigwigs, Mm -hmm. but like minor bigwigs, medium wigs. And he went to a military school to become an army officer. But then the French Revolution broke out and he being a – the son of a minor aristocratic family, he fled to America and worked there for several years as a surveyor. And while in the United States, supposedly Barbier became very interested in the writing systems that were being used by Native American tribes to to create codes for their languages – and Barbier at one point wrote, quote, Of all the inventions honoring the human spirit, writing has contributed most to its development and progress. So this guy's a fan of the printed word. Uh, But Barbier later returned to France and served in the army. And from his interest in the creation of writing systems, which he had sort of gained while he was in the United States, Barbier developed an idea for a code that could be useful in wartime. And this code was called night writing. Now, imagine you're out doing maneuvers under the cover of darkness. Maybe you want to put some mobile artillery in place without the enemy noticing what you're doing in the middle of the night. Uh, Now, you want to be able to send a written message from one group or station to to another. And normally, if you send a written message during night maneuvers, the person receiving the message would have to light a torch or a lantern in order to read it. But that might give away your position to the enemy if you suddenly light a fire in the middle of a dark battlefield and then maybe some shells come raining down on you. So Barbier's idea was to use a system of holes punched into a piece of cardboard uh, which could be read in total darkness because you could feel the symbols of the message with your fingers allowing you to read it without a light and without giving away your position to the enemy. So Barbier's got this great idea. He's like, "I'm going to change how how night moves are done." Mm-hmm. Um he's working on his night moves, and he presents this uh, this idea of night riding to the military leadership. But apparently, they're just not impressed. And I, I don't honestly know the reason why they rejected his idea. But if I had to guess, I would think one obstacle would be that this code would take time and effort for people to learn. And wouldn't necessarily be worth trying to make everybody learn when you also had the option of just transmitting messages by whisper. In the dark, you could send a human messenger to tell somebody something and they could whisper it in their ear. That probably wouldn't give much away.
0: Right. And then it also stands to reason that in some cases you would be able to deploy some sort of light and do so in a way that would not necessarily give away your position and we wouldn't require you to have learned a, co- a code and utilize some sort of a, a punch language.
1: Yeah, maybe under a blanket or something. I yeah, don't know.
0: like it's, it's, an, it's an eloquent solution for a problem that maybe did not call for so eloquent a solution. That's possible.
1: But even though he got rejected – oh, and by the way, Robert, I've included a picture of Barbier here who for some reason just really kind of reminds me of the way Xander Berkeley looks in Terminator 2.
0: (laughs) Wait, remind me of which character Xander Berkeley was.
1: Uh, He's John Connor's foster dad. You remember him? He's drinking the the milk carton.
0: Oh, yes, vaguely. Yes, uh, the T-1000 gets him. Yeah. The the T-1000 gets most people in that movie.
1: Maybe it's a spurious comparison. I see it. But anyway, Barbier was not finished with the idea of night writing even though it got rejected by the military. Um, While I would say there are some pretty obvious alternatives to night writing when it comes to uh, transmitting short messages on a darkened battlefield, it becomes a lot harder to come up with ways of like reading longer messages like say Mm -hmm. entire books in the dark – And so by 1815, Barbier had developed another idea. His idea was that the night writing system would be useful to the blind, especially uh, as written by Barbier and quoted in Malore's book, quote, to those born blind who are deprived of the means of ever being able to read our books or our writing and besides this meeting with the greatest difficulties in correctly tracing the outlines of letters – so he, he knew something about this problem like the idea that uh, blind people trying to read with with embossed letters of a normal alphabetic script faced problems. Like it, it just wasn't as easy as sighted people thought it should be to feel a letter with your fingers and instantly know what it is.
0: Certainly and if you're doubtful of this, the next time you go to say a cemetery or you're around some sort of a you know, statue that you are permitted to touch and paw at – um, try it out. Yeah, see uh, and, how fast you can yeah, go. Yeah, so see if you can how much you can read.
1: And it turns out Barbier was really onto something here. What, he created what turned out to be a very important precursor to the later system of Braille. Though he is not known as its inventor. That title, of course, goes to its namesake, uh, the namesake of the writing system, Louis Braille. So I think maybe we should take a quick break, and then we'll come back to meet Louis Braille.
0: All right, we're back. So let's talk about Louis Braille, who lived 1809 through 1852. Mm-hmm. So he was uh, he was a Frenchman, uh, would later grow up to be a French educator. But uh, as a as a child, at the the, the mere age of three, uh, he was he was blinded. So what happened is uh, his father was a harness maker. And he'd been playing with tools in his father's shop, mm-hmm. and um, a, a tool slipped in his hand and uh, injured his right eye.
1: Yeah, so this was in the uh, the commune of Couvray, and his father, like you said, is like I think he made saddles and stuff and mm-hmm. harnesses. And so, if you're a harness maker or saddle maker, you have to use a sharp tool called an awl to punch holes in tough leather. And apparently, young Louis was trying to punch a hole in leather with the awl when he accidentally slipped and he stabbed himself in the right eye. And uh, I've read that the remedy prescribed by a local healer was an infusion of something called lily water. I was mm. looking to try to figure out what this is. I couldn't find a lot of other stuff about it. Uh, but it, I assume that might be, I don't know, water that has been soaked with With lilies or something. But anyway, it's possible this may have made the risk of infection even worse.
0: Uh, The stabbed eye, of course, became infected and then it got worse. Yeah, what resulted was something known as sympathetic ophthalmia, which is an infection of both eyes following trauma to a single eye. Mm -hmm. And uh, this ultimately resulted in total blindness. Yeah, his eyes deteriorated over time and he was totally blind by five. And this is particularly devastating when you think about the the age at which most of us uh, begin to acquire language, written language. You mm-hmm. know, to, to be robbed of your your, your visual faculties uh, at age uh, you know, between the ages of three and five. Yeah, uh, that's uh, you, that's devastating.
1: Yeah, and of course, it, this uh, this led to uh, Braille's parents. Trying to get him enrolled in a in an institute or or a school for blind
0: children, and he eventually was. Yeah, and uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, he was he was lucky enough to be, to have been born in the right time, in the right place, to have access to one of these uh, one of the, really the earliest school for the blind. And it was at this this institute,
1: the uh, the National Institute or the Royal Institute for Blind Children in Paris, that were I think. It went through some some different leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, he first encountered the night writing system of Charles Barbier, though this uh, this wouldn't happen until later. Barbier actually approached the institute multiple times with his invention, and the first time was in 1820. And so, uh, I guess we should back up for a second. I don't know how much you came across this, but in a lot of the biographical writing about Louis Braille, there tends to be a kind of villain of the story by the name of Sebastian Gulli.
0: Well, that's a great villain's name.
1: I, I guess so. I Again, that's one I'm not sure I'm saying right. It's G-U-I-L-L-I-E. Gulli, I think. And uh, Gilly was head of the institute when Braille was first enrolled there as a child. And at that time, conditions at the institute were in many ways just pretty awful. Like the building was described as damp and poorly ventilated. There was dirty drinking water with few amenities. Uh, and Gilly apparently had a very prejudiced and condescending view toward the blind children that he was supposed to educate. Uh, as quoted in Millard's book, Gillie wrote in 1818 that he believed, quote, it has been clearly shown that the blind are not like other people susceptible to being restrained by external demonstrations the blind appreciate things only by extremes and can understand justice only by its effects a paternal and just management has thus replaced the flexible and weak regime that has for so long prevented good from
0: being done All right so that well that sounds that sounds horrible yeah. and and it and it continues you know a pre-existing trend of treating the disabled as uh, as something less than uh, than human in some cases, or at least uh, you know as a as a secondary class.
1: Yes, absolutely, and and this did appear to be Gilly's view. So he enacted harsh punishments on the children, including putting them uh, on a diet of dry bread and water, with physical beatings or whippings, confinement. Uh, in in some extreme cases, even chaining children to a post. Uh, and many of the children in the school, when, when new leadership came to power, they were later found to be malnourished and in poor health. Uh, there's an, an extremely hard to read, an egregious case where Galee actually performed medical experiments on his blind students. Ugh. Uh, So there was one case where he took fluid from the eyes of children suffering from a form of uh, blepharoblenuria, which is an eye infection resulting in discharge from the eyes. And he put it into the eyes of four blind children under his care at the school in order to test how it was transmitted. And his reasoning was that because they were already blind, there would not be risk of them losing their sight from the infection. Mm -hmm. Uh, Though the records of the experiment indicate that the infection was extremely painful to the children. It's a horrible story. But day to day at the school, the students were taught to do things like, uh, like weaving and tactile manual tasks, uh, weaving straw and rush mats and doing other kinds of jobs like that. Uh, but they also had opportunities to like learn and perform music, which Braille actually excelled at. He was said to be an extremely talented musician.
0: So this is the guy that was in charge when uh, uh, Barbier first brought uh, his night writing to the school.
1: Yeah. So Barbier first shows up at the school in 1820 and he tries to demonstrate to Gilly how a variation on the night writing system could be a useful alternative to the embossed print system that the students were using. And uh, he showed off a writing device that he created that consisted of a type of slate and a stylus. And uh, Gilly allowed the students to experiment with this briefly but Personally, he did not seem to see much use in the system and he passed on it. But soon after that, Gilly was dismissed from his position at the head of the institute after it was exposed that he had an affair with a much younger instructor at the school. And Gilly's replacement, a man named uh, Andre or Alexandre Pinier, who is generally regarded as having been a a kinder director uh, with a more genuine concern for the well-being of the students, he was put in place and uh, Barbier returned to make his case again – And fortunately, I think Piniguet recognized that the best judge of what kind of writing system would be useful to the blind students would be the students themselves. So he sponsored a period in which the students could experiment with Barbier's dot-based system of night writing. And the students almost immediately recognized the superiority of the dot-based system over the system of the the embossed print letters. The dots were simply much easier to read and to reproduce given the help of a, a slate and a stylus than the shapes of the print letters. And of course, one of the students who participated in this experiment was the young Louis Braille, uh, still a teenager at the time. Actually, I think at the beginning, he wasn't even a teenager yet. And so, Braille had excelled as a student at the institute. He was said to be uh, like very clever and avid learner and he, he had mastered the, uh, the old hui system of, uh, of, you know, the, the embossed letters and had read all the books. And he eventually moved on to teaching other students there.
0: And so Braille saw the potential for a system like night writing or mm-hmm. something, uh, you know, related to it. So what he did is he simplified Barbier's night writing system to make it faster to read and write. Yes. Creating the Braille system. And he revealed the system in 1824, and he also later adapted it to a musical notation. Exactly. And so though the
1: idea of the raised dots uh, to represent sounds or letters – came from Barbier, Braille completely reorganized the code system to make it much more practical. Original Barbier's system had been these cells composed of 12 possible dots that could be arranged to show the different letters. And while this cell was easier to read than an embossed alphabetic letter like in Hui's system, it was still too large to read very quickly. And so what Braille did is he simplified the letter system, the, the cell, to just six dots, which could fit under a single fingertip and allow Much faster reading. And one crazy thing to think about is that Braille was only 15 or 16 when he finished
0: creating this code. Oh, wow. Well, let's take another break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the invention of Braille itself and its legacy. All right, we're back. So, uh, you know, we've alluded to this already, but but let's take a minute to discuss what Braille exactly is. It is a tactile system of written language. It's a way uh, to read the written word via raised dots on a surface uh, with your fingers. And this is, of course, ideal for individuals who are blind or vision impaired. Mm -hmm. Braille however is not a language.
1: Yes, and that's important. It's much the same way that the alphabet is not a language. Mm-hmm. Alphabets are ways of encoding existing languages and
0: so is Braille. Yeah, it's it's a code that's been a- adapted to many existing languages since uh, the original French. Uh, for instance, there's English Braille or grade two Braille, and this consists of 250 different marks representing letters, numbers, punctuation marks, uh, formatting marks, contractions, and abbreviations. Each braille symbol is formed via braille cells, each uh, with spaces for six raised dots. So a full braille cell contains six raised dots and two parallel rows of three dots each.
1: You've probably seen them before, but they look kind of like, you know, they can sort of resemble like dominoes or the sides of a die.
0: Yeah. Imagine a domino with space for only six dots, again, in two uh, vertical rows of three. And of course, as you mentioned, there are different forms of Braille. Right. So, so first, let's consider the the most basic form, uh, what's generally referred to as uncontracted Braille. This is helpful for uh, beginners learning Braille, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, if you have th- in this system, if you have a phrase and you want to spell it out, you spell it out letter by letter. So you would, you know, if you're writing, um, you know, and then it came to pass, you mm-hmm. would do a, then you would do n, then you would do d, and you would just spell out every word in this sentence. But there are, of course, many
1: words in the English language that are usually just read as sort of units. You don't have to go one letter at a time, right?
0: Yeah, you think of uh, sight words, for instance, you know, words where you just you just look at it and you know it. And so this is where we get into contracted Braille, in which some 180 different letter contractions come into play to shorten and simplify everything, making it, again, faster to read and easier to write. hmm By the way, I know some of you uh, who have listened to past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, that deal with with the Mandarin uh, language or particularly the Chinese typewriter, you might be asking yourself, huh, I wonder how Mandarin is translated into Braille. Because
1: it's not a phonetic written language.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, I looked this up, and it, uh, the way it works is that uh, the Chinese Braille represents the sounds of language rather than the many Chinese characters that would be involved in in traditional Ch- uh, written Chinese language. It's a, it's a little bit different. Each symbol contains three Braille letters, uh, initial, final, and then rep- something representing the tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in a way, it's kind of like uh, pinyin Braille, you know, in which uh, Mandarin Chinese is rendered in um, uh, you know in uh, in in Western characters like
1: transliterated script exactly now I mentioned the slate and the stylus earlier and that's an important uh, tool for writing in Braille because mm-hmm. it helps guide the the writer in order to punch out the letters to form the code they're creating and and helps keep the uh, letters evenly spaced and along the same line
0: and again so much easier. Than trying to then create embossed uh, letters on paper.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, as for this invention, I, I was just thinking about how it, we sort of alluded to this earlier. But I think it's important to think about how Braille was not the first attempt to create a reading and writing system for the blind and visually impaired. Before this, you had things like the embossed alphabetic letters of Valentin Hui. You had the night writing of Barbier, and these inventions were not worthless. But despite the efforts of these inventors, they weren't nearly as useful or efficient as they could have been. Mm -hmm. And it took the insights of Louis Braille himself to streamline the code system to its optimal form. And I can't help but think that this must have something to do with the fact that Braille himself was a blind reader with direct personal experience of the day-to-day issues faced by blind readers, understanding sort of the texture of the experience, what it's like to read with one's fingers, and having no other choice but to read with his fingers. And so he was able to imagine improvements in the system that others didn't. And this sort of reminds me of something that often seems true about invention, that the insights that often lead to the best inventions are not always just rooted in things like engineering, genius, and creativity. They also are rooted in habitual familiarity with the kinds of problems that the invention is needed to solve, like hands-on experience.
0: Yeah, and and really the, the Braille, even if we go go back to the roots in night writing, like that was it, and that was rooted in an attempt to solve a problem mm-hmm. um, uh, that the the innovator uh, had a real world experience with. Uh, and, and granted, it was a military situation, but then and then in this technology is passed on to Braille who has a direct experience of the sightless world and uses uh, his familiarity with this you know you know altered uh, sensory experience to create braille and uh, and this is the the system we have today like this is still the standard for uh, for for written language for the blind yes though we should mention that since then there
1: have been other types of uh, of encoding written language for the blind like there are other, one thing I've been reading about is that, for example, there are other systems for people who became blind later in life and mm-hmm. were more used to the alphabetic language uh, that's something a little bit more like the old Hui system, right? It's right. got like embossed letters. There are also versions that attempt to sort of like mingle the two where you sort of like make letters out of raised dots – And that's designed to be useful so that like if you are a blind writer, you can use that to – it might be slower going but can produce a script that's also readable to people who only know like the sighted alphabet.
0: Right. And then uh, Braille has continued to evolve over time. First of all, to meet new language demands. Uh, We mentioned the Mandarin example. But another great example is uh, Nemeth Braille, a form of Braille developed in 1952 by American mathematician and inventor Abraham Nemeth who was, uh, by the way, born blind. Uh, And it was uh, officially integrated into United English Braille in 1992, and it is used to write mathematics in Braille. Mm. Uh, There's also the uh, uh, Gardner-Salinas Braille Codes created to codify math and scientific notation, and there's also the Braille Code of Chemical Notation from 1997. Mm. So uh, we've seen this sort of continual broadening of the system as the system has needed to to explain and express different uh, systems, different uh, written systems uh, in addition to just sort of core uh, uh, written language needs.
1: Now, of course, there are continuing challenges in adapting braille technology. I mean, one thing that might be rather obvious is the idea that a lot of the text we encounter today happens not on in printed text but on screens.
0: That's right. Yeah. So we've seen we we have seen some amazing breakthroughs though with um, refreshable braille display, displays. Mm-hmm. Uh, these provide access to information on a computer screen by electronically raising and lowering different combinations of pins in braille cells. And uh, this is you know the kind of pricey technology. Um, uh, the price of braille displays range from thirty five hundred to fifteen thousand dollars, depending on the number of characters displayed. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole history of, of Braille writing machines and Braille printers. Uh, Frank uh, Haven Hall presented the, the first Braille writer machine in 1892, and various improvements uh, came with time. Today we even have, uh, you know, Braille computer printers, uh, portable Braille note-taking devices, and then the Braille displays that uh, we've already mentioned. Um, yeah, but Braille printers. Uh, uh, range from, say, small-scale Braille printers that cost between $1,800 and $5,000 to large-volume ones that can cost between $10,000 and Uh, $80,000. But the technology exists. You can hook a printer up to a machine and print in Braille if you have the right technology. Another bit of technology worth noting, the Braille wristwatch, where you uh, lift uh, the lid of the timepiece to, quote-unquote, touch the time.
1: This makes me wonder about a question that I I don't know if we can really fully answer, though we might be able to say a little bit about it, is um, the question of how the experience of reading is different, or is it Hmm. different uh, when you're reading with eyes versus reading with
0: your fingers? I was wondering about this as well, because— it's you know I guess my experience in this is limited, I, but but just thinking about the differences between reading uh, written text mm-hmm. and say listening to an audio book. Yeah, it's a very different experience. So different experience. Yeah, you can still. I mean, ultimately, I guess the if if you have to like drive home, like, well, what are the differences between reading uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe versus. Uh, listening to it in the car mm-hmm. um, I mean it's still the same story, still has the same characters but there but there is something different about the experience it's it's a different way of absorbing the content. Yeah, I wonder what those differences are like um, with, with Braille versus these other means.
1: Yeah, I don't want to necessarily go like full Marshall McLuhan, but I do believe that <laughs> like the physical substrates of our media do play a role in shaping thought in culture and the nature of the experience of the information that gets shared on that media. So if, if printed text is one medium and Braille is another, is that experience of reading one versus the other substantially different? And in in terms of the internal sensation of reading one versus the other, I I don't know what the answer is. I was trying to look for – I was trying to read around on this and I couldn't find much on the subject. Though maybe there's good stuff out there. I I did come across a study in current biology from the year 2011 – by Reich, Sved, Cohen, and Ametti, uh, called a ventral visual stream reading center independent of visual experience. Mm. And so what the authors of this study, it was a neuroscience study where they did an fMRI experiment on you know measuring brain function while people were reading across different media. And the authors said that there's this pathway in the brain that is thought to be important for reading visual text. And it's called the visual word form area, or the VWFA. And the authors write, quote, this study investigated which area plays the role of the VWFA in the blind. One would expect this area to be at either parietal or bilateral occipital cortex, reflecting the tactile nature of the task and cross-modal plasticity, uh, respectively. So they're thinking that okay, if somebody's reading with their fingers, they would expect the parts of the brain involved to be like parts of the brain that are normally associated with touch sensation. Mm -hmm. But the authors used fMRI to see what brain activity looks like when blind readers read in braille and what they found was quote, striking anatomical consistency within and between blind and sighted readers and so the authors, it, this led them to propose that the visual word form area is not necessarily about visual words. Instead, it's, quote, a metamodal reading area that develops specialization for reading regardless of visual experience. Hmm. So I, that's fascinating. Like if they're correct about this, it means that there's sort of a suite of brain functions that are used specifically for consuming symbolic representations of language language whether that symbolic representation is visual seeing of letters or tactile feeling of dot cells and the authors say that this uh, this they believe supports the model that brain areas are quote task machines not sensory machines mm. but that's really interesting again if they're correct it suggests that there's something deeper about reading that is more fundamental than visual processing. Reading isn't just about seeing. There's something in the brain that is the reading function that's deeper than seeing.
0: And that's really, when you get down to it, like that's what Braille does. It like it, it gets straight to that process yeah. and cuts out the complexities of just trying to take this existing visual system and make it uh, uh, readable by the blind. You know, another way that I think Braille
1: is really interesting in, in technology history. Is it is absolutely not a case where the 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 delay in the invention of Braille was caused by some lack of technology, right? It wasn't right. that we didn't have electricity or didn't have X, Y, or Z that allowed us to produce this technology. It was really just a lack of people turning their attention toward this task and putting resources into it.
0: Right. There was a certain level of of cultural advancement that needed to be in place. Yeah. uh, Cultural values that needed to be in place. I also think there's a case to be made for just sort of the the shrinking of the world, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. the, the growing of populations. Uh, and then also uh, the way that uh, communities of the blind could be brought together mm-hmm. uh, to, in, in cases like this, begin to solve problems that they faced individually, that they, I mean, that they faced as a group, you know?
1: Right. Because there's a school for the blind, there's a place for Charles Barbier to go with his night Riding mm-hmm. invention and say,
0: I think this might be useful. Exactly. And then a place for an individual like uh, Braille to rise to prominence. Yes, now I didn't even you know I didn't even go down the sort of sci-fi track uh, here on this, but it does make me wonder if there are any science fiction treatments that explore the possibility of, of what a written communication system in an inherently blind uh, civilization might consist of. You know, um, because one of the, we focused on some of the, the the interesting aspects of Braille, in which it is a system. Uh, by the blind, for the blind. Mm. Uh, But of course it is based, it stems from a system and a culture of the sighted. Uh, one wonders like what a purely um, you know, a purely uh, a tactile writing system might have consisted of. Maybe it would be very much like Braille.
1: Well, there you would have to wonder again. Either way, language begins as a spoken and heard thing like it's right. oral. Yeah. Um, and so the, it gets translated into symbolic coding like alphabets and then later like Braille. You didn't have to have the alphabet in between. You could have gone straight from spoken language to Braille, right? Right. But it had to start with spoken language there. I wonder, are you asking maybe like uh, if, if you could have gone straight from an auditory and spoken language to Braille or a language that is tactile from the beginning?
0: Yeah, like what would like would it, would it, would it, would it be necessary to like we have the alphabet standing between mm-hmm. spoken word and Braille uh, but yeah, what would it, would it be like if there was a more direct line between these two systems or would it just be necessary to invent something like the alphabet some other version of the alphabet to uh, to serve as these for of the translation of these two sensory experiences i don't see any inherent reason
1: that would have to be yeah Anyway, I I find language technology generally fascinating, and I want to continue to return to the idea of language technologies as we as we go on in this uh, show because I I want to, for example, explore the idea of invented languages. People try to oh, yes. invent languages. Why do these not catch on? How come it's so
0: hard, nigh impossible to really do it? Oh yes, I definitely want to come back to this because you have you have in, invented languages that uh, sort of have a. A higher or more noble purpose, and then you you have uh, fictional languages of the the likes of Klingon, uh-huh. which are which is still a, a lingu- linguistic system uh, mm-hmm. created, uh, you know, with all the the hallmarks of, of an actual language. It can be learned. It can be spoken. Uh, so um, uh, yeah, I'd love to come back and discuss that. So much of the uh, uh, of that is uh, you know not being a linguist myself, it you know it, 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 the concept is uh, is kind of foreign to me. Like for instance, when I think of J.R. R. Tolkien, uh-huh. you know, it's easy to think, oh, you know, I'm totally behind the idea of setting down and creating an entire uh, world of. Uh, of monsters and, uh, and magic, but then the idea of setting down and also creating an entire language for one of the peoples or numerous uh, uh, species in the given world, that just sounds like way too much work for me, but then again, I'm not a linguist.
1: Uh, Maybe creating languages is one of those things kind of like playing a musical instrument. Like it's not really fun until you're good enough to do it, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like it seems not fun to you because you wouldn't know where to start. But if you were a linguist and you had all kinds of ideas about the roots of language and how words are formed and all that, maybe then it's just a blast.
0: One thing I would love to explore in this hypothetical uh, episode on fictional languages is if one had to choose. So – you know like an alien species comes down dominates the earth and says all right all your all these existing languages that you're using they're all garbage we're getting rid of all of them you guys get to vote on it on which language you're all going to use but it can only be a language that was developed exclusively for a film or TV <laughs> show like which one is like is is na'vi better than klingon is Kling, is Kling? Dothraki? is dothraki like what is the most robust and useful Fictional language system. The Dothraki have no word for thought experiment. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the problem that I feel like we might run into. It, I don't know. It's probably Klingon. That's my 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 guess based on some very preliminary research the Klingon seems to maybe have received the most work. But I could be very wrong on that.
1: You know, Robert, judging on our history with Listener Mail, I bet a couple listeners are going to write in with thoughts about this. We're going to receive some opinions.
0: Well, I hope so. And likewise, I, I do hope we hear from, from any listener out there who who reads Braille mm-hmm. um, or you know, anybody who is blind or vision impaired that has uh, some additional insight that they would like to share on this topic.
1: Yeah, and also if you've – I mean – If you've had the experience of both reading printed text and reading Braille, do you think that there is a major difference in the experience of reading the two? And if so, what is that difference like?
0: All right. So we're going to close it off there. But if uh, you want to check out all the episodes of Invention, there are several different ways to do it. You can check out our homepage. That's uh, inventionpod.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes linked out to some social uh, media accounts as well. And of course, you can find this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and if you want to help us out a great thing to do is to first of all subscribe to Invention at any of these uh, these sources. And then rate and review us if you have the power to do so. That helps us out immensely.
1: Thanks to Scott Benjamin for research assistance with this episode. And thanks to our awesome audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, let us know how you found out about the show, where you listen from, and all that stuff, you can email us at contact at um mm-hmm.